good morning to you, to all those in your household who have gathered this morning to worship you. Join uh, many people around the valley, even around the world, as we come together to worship the Lord Jesus Christ and to receive from his word. I want you to imagine for just a moment that we are not in a pandemic and that at least here in Phoenix, it's not 110 degrees outside. Can you imagine that? Well, in this imaginary scenario, if you were to walk up to someone on the sidewalk and to ask them, are you a good person? What would they say? What you would probably hear is, yes, I think I am a good person. And if you ask them why they think that, they will probably say something like, well, I'm not perfect, but I try and do what's right. Or I do what makes me happy so long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Or I do more good things than bad things, and I'm definitely not as bad as a lot of other people. What you are unlikely to hear is, no, I am a wretched sinner in need of God's mercy. And that's because our culture tends to believe that human beings are basically good. Ironically, while we have abandoned any universal standard of morality, what seems to be universal is that we all think of ourselves as decent beings. We have a hard time believing the archaic moral principles and that they still apply from the Bible. We have a hard time understanding why what God calls sin is really all that bad. We have a hard time seeing that there is evil within ourselves. And actually, for many Americans, the, the answer to our problems comes from within ourselves. We simply need more self-realization, more self-empowerment, as it were. Today, we're going to have to confront this impulse. Now, if I were to walk up to you on the sidewalk and ask you, what is the big idea of the book of Philippians according to the series we've been in? Well, I've said it enough that I think you would say, well, Paul wants the believers to keep living out their faith and service to Jesus Christ, just as they have been doing up till now. And the reason that this is Paul's message throughout the book is that there are obstacles to the believers in Philippi continuing to live out their faith. There are things within themselves, and there are things within their congregation, corporately speaking, that threaten their living faith. But as we come to, to Philippians chapter 3 today, it turns out there are also people outside of their congregation who would wish to persuade the believers to falter in that faith. Let's see what Paul has to say about it. I want to encourage you to turn in your Bibles with me to Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 to 11. I'm going to read this passage in small portions as we go along this morning. We'll begin with verses 1 to 2. Paul says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Oh, I think, I'm, I think I might have missed a sentence or something. Did, did he really just say, rejoice in the Lord and then watch out for the dogs? And Paul seems to be totally erratic here, right? And, and plus, I think that's mildly offensive. So what's going on here right in the beginning of this passage? 
Well, what Paul does here in verses 1 and 2 and changing his subject and his tone so dramatically between these verses is a rhetorical way of reaching out and grabbing the shirt of the reader. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. This just got intense. Whoever these dogs are, Paul doesn't stop at just calling them dogs. He goes on to say that they are evildoers and they are mutilators. It's pretty harsh stuff. And the reason that Paul is using such harsh language here is so that he might shake the Philippians out of any complacency that they might have towards the seriousness of what's at stake. Well, who are these dogs? And what's at stake? Well, remember Paul planted this church in Philippi 10 years earlier. He now writes to them from a prison cell and he wants to protect them from those who want to compromise, to corrupt the health and the mission of that congregation there. And what's happening in the the context around the Mediterranean is this. Remember, Jesus was a Jew. And all 12 of his apostles were Jews. And pretty much all of Jesus' other disciples were Jews. And on the first, on the day of Pentecost, the birth of the church, all of these first converts to Christianity were Jews. And that's because the gospel was promised first to the people of Israel as a fulfillment of the old covenant faith of Abraham and the law of Moses. But Jesus was quite clear in the Great Commission that the gospel was not just for the Jews. It was for the whole world. They were to go out and to make disciples of all nations. Well, as they did that, the question became, what do we do with the Gentiles who want to become Christians? Do they have to keep the Jewish law like those Jews who became Christians? Well, as I shared last week, the apostles dealt with this question emphatically In 49 AD at the Jerusalem Council, and you can see Acts chapter 15 for a description of that, and they decided that because the gospel was about salvation by grace through faith in Christ, the Gentiles did not need to first become Jews in order to become Christians. Well, among the Jews who claimed Christianity for themselves were men who did not agree with the apostles on this. They rejected that decision. They believed that the Gentiles could not truly become Christians without first accepting circumcision and all of the customs of the law. And these are who we refer to as the Judaizers. And these Judaizers were sending out missionaries. See, it's not just Christians who send out missionaries. Sending out these these men around the Mediterranean trying to lead astray those whom Paul and others had led to Christ. And thus Paul here warns the Philippians, look out for those dogs. Now the unpleasantness of this word dog, when applied to humans, is a little bit lost on us. We, after all, have domesticated dogs and made them pretty much an equal part of our families. And some of us even let them sleep in our beds. I won't name names here. But dogs, in Paul's day, dogs were those wild and unwanted pests that roamed the streets of cities and towns bothering children and defecating where people walk and intruding into homes when they were not wanted. 
And so to call someone a dog, while it may still be unkind in our day, it simply does not carry with it quite the same effect as it did when Paul said it. So how and why could Paul be so impolite? Well, the reality is that these Judaizers, while they claim to follow Christ, Paul is saying they do not actually belong to the household of faith. They actually believe heresy. And worse than that, they are trying to convince others of the same heresy. Let's talk about this word heresy for a bit. That word carries with it all sorts of meanings. So let me define heresy according to the general consensus of early Christianity. Heresy is adding or subtracting something from the gospel as necessary for salvation. Adding or subtracting something from the gospel as necessary for salvation. We might also say that it includes the departure from a clear teaching in Scripture which is necessary for the gospel to make sense. Someone who is guilty of heresy has so perverted the essential doctrines of the Christian faith that they themselves and those who follow them cannot be considered a part of the people of God. Heresy is like an infectious disease. I think we know a bit about those now, don't we? It attacks the spiritual health of the person who believes it. And probably worse than that, it's bound to spread. It will likely infect anyone who comes into contact with it and who does not have the proper defenses. And if left untreated, it ends in death. That may seem overblown, but heresy is not something to be trifled with, says Paul. And so Paul wants to reach out and to grab the shirt of the Philippians and to warn them, these Judaizers wish to infect you with the virus that they carry, so watch out for them. Now, it's interesting to note that the Judaizers themselves are actually accusing Paul of basically the same thing, of heresy. Because Paul does not require circumcision and keeping the law for these new Gentile Christians. They believe Paul has subtracted something from the gospel which is necessary for salvation. So who do we know is right? Is it Paul or is it the Judaizers? Well, aside from the fact that Paul and the apostles carried the authority of Christ, we should remember how the book of Acts says every time Gentiles put their faith in Christ and believed the gospel and were baptized, what happened? They received the Holy Spirit just like the Jews. Therefore, nothing else was necessary to be saved, certainly not circumcision. And this is where Paul goes next in verse 3. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul says, we, as in not the Judaizers, we are the circumcision. Do you see how ironic that is? He's saying, we, Paul, the apostles and the Jewish Christians, but also the uncircumcised Gentiles with us, we are the true circumcised ones. That doesn't make any sense. How, how can he say that? Let's talk about circumcision for a moment. 
True circumcision has nothing to do with the foreskin of male genitalia. How ridiculous would it be if our good news of salvation were cut that off and be saved? No. Salvation is about changing the heart, not the body. True circumcision is a spiritual circumcision. It's a circumcision of the heart, which has always been what mattered to God, even in the Old Covenant. Here with the prophet Jeremiah cries out against the hypocrisy of circumcised Judah. He says in chapter 4, verse 4, Don't circumcise your genitalia. Instead, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Remove the foreskin of your hearts. Well, then we might ask, why would God ever command such a strange thing like physical circumcision? While most Americans understand what circumcision is, medically speaking, although we might wish to not know, they simply have no idea why it mattered to the Jews. It wasn't just a physical marking that came with some health benefits. No, it was a symbol that had everything to do with belonging to the people of God and producing godly offspring who would bless the world. See Genesis 17. The problem is that over time, many Jews began to put their trust in the physical change that made them distinct from others instead of the heart change that caused them to belong to the people of God. Old Covenant circumcision, it's much like we understand the sacraments. It is a physical sign that pointed to a deeper spiritual commitment of belonging to God. And thus, the physical sign is meaningless if a Jew had not actually put their faith in God. Now, it should not be lost on us that Paul is more like these Judaizers in ethnicity and in religious heritage than he is like these Philippians. The Philippian congregation was almost entirely Gentile. They had a different culture, and certainly they were physically uncircumcised. This is why they were being targeted by the Judaizing missionaries in the first place. But what Paul had in common with these Gentile Philippians was everything. It was the truth of the gospel. That salvation from God has always come by grace through faith. And so Paul had a choice. And instead of putting stock in his physical ties to his own quote-unquote people, Paul puts all of his loyalty into the spiritual ties he has to these Gentiles through the gospel. And thus Paul says, we are the ones, me and you, Gentiles. We are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Our confidence is not in the marking of our bodies, but in the marking of our hearts. These Judaizers, these Judaizers on the other hand, their confidence is in the flesh. And so Paul just decides, how about for a minute, let me play your game. And this is where he goes in verses 4 to 6. He says, 
Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has a reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Paul is basically saying, anything you can do, I can do better. I can do anything better than you. And then he goes on to list some reasons why he's better. He was circumcised by the law, by the exact specifications that the law presents. He was Jewish by birth. He was born of the tribe of Benjamin, which produced Israel's first king. And therefore, he's as Hebrew as you can get. As to keeping the law, he kept it as rigidly as a Pharisee. As to zeal, he went out and killed those who threatened Judaism. And as to human righteousness, he was as perfect as they come. So if you're saying that the flesh matters for salvation, well, guess what? You ain't got nothing on Paul. But Paul doesn't leave it there. Instead, he says this in verses 7 to 8, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ. Paul has told these Judaizers, when it comes to the flesh, I am better than you, period. And now he turns to them and says, Everything I've gained by my birth and by my efforts, it's nothing. It's nothing before the Lord. How could Paul say that? Well, first of all, none of it was worth anything in comparison to the worth of Jesus. The kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. While the world would see all of Paul's privileges and successes as gain compared to the supreme value of knowing Jesus, it was a loss. Second of all, Paul admits that none of his advantages by birth or his accomplishments by his efforts could actually help him achieve salvation. They couldn't actually help him get Jesus. None of it. Not any of it. It was like a pile of rubbish. And in fact, the Greek word here is better translated as fecal matter. Crap. All of Paul's human righteousness was what dogs drop in the streets. Now we need to be careful when Paul talks so negatively about the flesh to understand when he says that word, he is not saying that all he's mentioned is evil. Instead, what he's talking about is human fallenness and helplessness, the flesh. All the good things Paul had gained in his life were the product of fallible human beings and tainted by sin, and therefore they could never receive God's approval. And if it's true of Paul, it is true of all of us before we're saved. 
It is the bad news that makes sense of God's good news. It's the tragedy that makes sense of Christ's victory. And Christ's victory is how Paul ends this passage. He says in verses 9 to 11, And to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The core salvation that the core doctrine of salvation that Paul is defending here in this passage is the doctrine we know of as the justification by faith. All human beings stand before God as unrighteous. And if human beings are unrighteous, then it means that they cannot save themselves. And if human beings cannot save themselves, then it means that God must do the saving. And if God must do the saving, then he must be the one to give human beings the righteousness which they lack. How could God do that? God himself became a human being in order to live the righteous life that humans are incapable of living and to die the death that human unrighteousness deserves. And in doing so, Jesus made it possible for us as guilty and unfaithful humans to be declared righteous before God. This is what justification means, to be made right with God. Jesus is the author of that justification. He is at the same time both God the just and the one who justifies us before God. Why would God do that for us? He didn't owe us. It's because of his grace. It's because he loves us. How do we receive it? We receive it by faith. Apart from any good work that we've done, we receive it by faith. And thus Paul says that when Christ comes again, he does not want to be found trusting in some self-made righteousness apart from Jesus because what good would that be? He doesn't want to rely upon his good works even though they were many, hoping that God will accept them in the end because God won't. And therefore, the answer is to rely upon the righteousness of Jesus, which is given freely to whoever puts their faith in him. This is the gospel in a nutshell. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. I want to share two implications from this passage with you this morning. One is inward, and the other is outward. One is quite obvious, and the other might be strange, but I think it nevertheless is quite relevant. The first implication is this. God's Word, it, it speaks the same truth to us today as it did 2,000 years ago. 
And that is that right standing, justification before God comes only through faith in Jesus Christ because of his perfect mediation as both faithful God and faithful man. Jesus upheld both sides of the covenant for us. Being accepted by God, it does not come from our goodness, not from our efforts, and certainly not from within ourselves. It comes by God's grace and because of Jesus. Some of us have perfect Christian beliefs on this point. We can recite the doctrine of justification by faith forwards and backwards. But when it comes to how we live, we are more like moralists. We try so hard to do what's right. We tie heavy burdens and hard yokes to our necks so God will accept us. And when we fail, we just bury the guilt and the shame and we promise to try harder. And do you know what trying to be good on your own is called? Self-righteousness. Self-righteousness. And that is no foundation on which to rest your salvation. It's like Jesus' parable of the two builders. One man built his house on the rock Another man built his house on the sand, and when the rains came and the waters rose, the house on the sand crumbled away, but the house on the rock was secure. Jesus is the rock, and only Jesus' righteousness is worth building a life on. And so this passage confronts us with the question, well, where is our confidence before God? Where is it? Is it in Jesus' hands? Or is it in ours? The heresy of our culture is that we can be good enough. And it's not true. It's not true. And so this morning, I want you to do the most important thing you will ever do in your life. And that is to receive Christ's Righteousness, you don't get to take it, you receive it. You have an opportunity today to do maybe the, the, the thing that you've done for the first time in your life. But for most of us, this is something we have to do daily. We must look honestly at our own human fallenness and helplessness and realize how much we are not a good person on our own. And when we do that, far from being depressed, what we find is a doorway to God's grace. And walking through that door, what we find is that God's grace is so much better than whatever we thought we had anyway. Christ is the gain. The second thing I want to encourage you in is outward. And, and I'll admit it's a bit tangential. But I think it's good for us to hear. Paul's warning against heresy is clear. It's serious. 
Heresy impacts your soul. I, th I think most of us are aware of this, and so I'm not simply going to warn you this morning not to believe heresy. Rather, I, I want to give you, who are Christians, a word of caution about how you handle this word heresy. And I think that this is particularly relevant in divisive times like these when we can be so suspicious of others. In my mind, there are two common mistakes when it comes to how Christians use this word. In the ditch on one side of the road are those who I will call heresy hunters. Those who make it their aim to search out and destroy anyone who doesn't agree with them. These people are quick to throw others under the heresy bus. They will use the word heresy for just about any idea they don't like. The first problem with handling heresy like this is that it tends to demonize the humans behind these beliefs, as if our enemies were people and not the lies that deceive them. The second problem with heresy hunting is that it tends to misapply the word heresy. Well, they say, well, isn't it better to be safe than sorry? No, it's not. Hear me. The problem with calling something heresy that isn't heresy is that it is tantamount to heresy itself. Remember what heresy is. To add or subtract something from the gospel as necessary to salvation. So, if you call someone a heretic because they do believe or do not believe a particular doctrine that is actually not necessary for salvation, you are in fact adding something to the gospel as necessary for salvation, which is not, and in doing so, you are now not in a good place. I've seen individual Christians do this, rarely to people's face, often online. And I've seen entire Christian groups do this. They take minor differences of doctrine and practice and make them equal in importance to the primary truths of the gospel. And to do so is a perversion of the gospel they claim to profess. So let us be careful how we use this word, heresy. In the other ditch are those who I will call heresy huggers. Those who tip toe around any and every religious view, making sure not to offend anyone. These people are squeamish when they hear the theological lines of orthodoxy drawn. They want to believe that anyone can be good, and therefore God may accept them despite their beliefs. The problem with this heresy hugging is that the gospel cannot mean whatever we wish it to mean. God's word is not ours to bend. And God's word says it is impossible to be justified and in right relationship to God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And so when we accommodate someone who clearly departs from the core theology of the gospel, we become culpable in their deception. So let us also be careful that we don't not use the word heresy. How do we avoid these mistakes on both sides of the road? 
How do we do it? Well, in part, I would just suggest, just be careful. But here's how I really think that we do this as Christians. It is by holding fast to the gospel. Holding fast to the gospel without addition or omission. And by living graciously so that we might persuade all people to put their faith in the only good person who can save them, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That's how. Let's pray for God's grace to be Christians like this. Jesus, we thank you for the righteousness that comes by grace through faith. We thank you that we have nothing in and of ourselves to boast about. And so, Lord Jesus, we are in a perpetual state of humility before you. We come before your throne of grace. Help us, Lord Jesus, in our belief and in our practice to affirm this doctrine of justification by faith to not let our salvation rest in any good thing that we might do. To recognize, Lord Jesus, that in doing so, we say no to your saving power. Jesus, we do not want to be found on the last day clinging to our own do-it-yourself righteousness. No, Lord Jesus, we want to cling to yours and yours alone. Teach us, Lord Jesus, to do this ourselves and then to walk this way and to persuade the world of the good news of the gospel that is available to them freely by grace through faith. We praise you, Lord Jesus, and it is in your name that we pray.